before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that you bring us together, Lord, that you allowed us, Lord, to meet here in your presence, to hear what you have uh, prepared for us. Father, I just ask that it all be from you, from your heart to ours. Guide us, Father. Instruct us. Inspire us. Open our hearts, our minds, our spiritual eyes, Lord, to receive everything that you have because you are such a generous giver, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. He is our God. Amen. And it says in the beginning, God. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? In the beginning, God. Let's reflect on that statement just a minute before we continue on, on this journey about God in our lives. In the beginning, period. He was there before the beginning. We are not seeing in the word that in the beginning God was created. In the beginning, the word says God created the heavens and the earth. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? That's a big deal. He created the heavens and the earth. No small thing. Can you imagine the power, the wisdom, the intelligence that it took to create the universe I don't think we can. If we could understand how God could create anything out of nothing, then we ourselves would be in the same category as God. If we could explain him, what do we need the original for? We would be the originals, but we can't. Genesis 1-1 is such a powerful statement that many commentators Scholars and teachers of the Word of God have written volumes and volumes on it trying to explain what it means. We were privileged to hear uh, last week Pastor Sam a few days ago uh, referring to the same question that the Lord has put in my heart to share with us today. And that question is, who is God in our lives? Better still, who do you say I am, as Jesus asked his disciples? Who do you say I am? I had, to, I had to wait to put this together, this message, because it overwhelmed me the first time, the first day that I tried to write it down. It just overwhelmed me. There was, there was a spirit uh, that, that came over me that didn't let me write any further because I think God just wanted me to really soak this up myself first. You know, he says, he says that the messenger is the one that gets it first. I was just overwhelmed, folks, by that spirit of just thinking how great a God it is that we serve and how little we understand about him. Just the very thought that people would relegate God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to less than first place in their lives was a depressing as well as a frightening thought. Are we talking about the creator of the universe? Are we referring to the God that formed Adam out of clay, but then gave him life? 
as he blew into his nostrils and there was life blown into Adam. To give life is in itself a thought beyond our comprehension. How did he do it? I will not venture a guess because that would be an exercise in futility, but I can stand in awe of the God that did just that. Can you imagine anyone thinking that a pair of amoebas that came from who knows where would eventually evolve into all the complex organisms that form life on earth today? That's what creationism says. It all started with two little amoebas that split. From where? From what? They just appeared. They just appeared. God doesn't get the credit, does he? And then to think that God has clearly told us that it was he that formed us. Look in Genesis 2, uh, 1, 26 through 27. And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over everything creeping that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. In verse 29 through 31, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, chapter 1 still, 29 through 31, it says, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. I have given you, he's talking to Adam and Eve, I have given you also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. That's it. I have given it, there it is. It was done by God's power. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. These two accounts should show us that the power of God was unquestioned in that it was he who created man and all that is on the earth. How then can man, fragile and imperfect man, be so inclined as to question God's intent for our lives or any of his plans for our future, even the future in eternity? After this short period on this earth, there's eternity. He's already got the plan for us. He's got the plan. He's presented it to us, and now what does he say? You choose. Which are you going to choose? 
Isaac had married Rebekah, and they had no children. But then verse 21 of chapter 25 of Genesis says this. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Couldn't have any children. And Isaac says, Lord, we need some help. You created everything. I need your help. And it says, and the Lord granted his plea. Granted his plea. Isaac asks, God says, okay. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. There were no fertility clinics at that time except God. If the Lord wanted a woman to conceive a child, it was he who caused it to happen. Not so today. Man has been allowed through God's wisdom to bring about many medical marvels that we attribute to man's wisdom. How many times have we heard of a patient recovering from a serious illness that the doctors had declared incurable? There's nothing more we can do for you. Go home and die. Five years later, is this person still living? Ten years later, is this person still walking around? They call it an unexplained occurrence, but never, or almost never, give God the credit or the glory for a miraculous, supernatural healing. The point I'm trying to make here is that our God, our God, folks, each one of us, Jehovah, is not someone we can or should take for granted. He is sovereign and does not share his glory with anyone. Perhaps what has happened to man is that we have failed to fully understand the omnipotence, the omniscience, and the omnipresence of God. Please consider what the book of Jeremiah in chapter 1, 1 through 10, tells us about what God can do. Not that he can't do much greater things, but this should... Uh, should show us what he may choose to do with any of us. Jeremiah 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anatoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign, it, also, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, of Josiah pardon, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. And it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Can you imagine? God is telling him, even before your mother was carrying you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. Before you were born, I sanctified you. 
I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Before his birth, before his conception, God already knew Jeremiah. He was there at the beginning, folks. He was there at the creation, folks. He was there when everything was being formed. He can do anything. That's the God we are supposed to be serving. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, I, uh, to build and to plant. Now, let me ask you a question. How would we answer God if today he called upon you and told you those words, and told you this, you're going out into the world, you're gonna take my word here, I'm putting it in your mouth. What does the Bible say? Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that means that when God touched his mouth, his heart was filled with the word of God that Jeremiah was supposed to take to all the nations as a prophet that God had chosen as a prophet. Would you stop whatever you were doing and obey the call as Jeremiah did? What if you had a very lucrative, prestigious, important position? Would you believe he would provide for you as the prophet did? Would you believe that? And say, okay, he's calling me, I've got to go. This is what I have to do. Do you remember the, the rich young ruler that came to Christ and, and told him, what, what must I do to gain the kingdom of God? And Christ told him, hey, you know, do all of these things that you're supposed to do, obey your parents, give tithes, and, you know, treat, treat all of the, the orphans and the widows and treat them right. And he says, I do all of that. I've done it since my youth. And he said, okay, then go and give everything and follow me. Because you're not going to be able to take care of business if you're going to be following me. Go give all of that up. Leave it and come with me. What did he do? He walked away sad because he had a lot. He said he was very rich. I can't do that. I can't do that. Have you got something else? What's the other option? Nothing. Either give it away and come with me or stay with what you've got. Stay with your material goods, with your material wealth. How's that going to work out for you? Would any of us do that if the Lord put a call on us? 
There are times when a president will call upon a prominent businessman or other dignitary to come and be a part of his cabinet. And almost never do these people turn him down, even though they may be downgrading their income or their positions. Hardly ever will anybody turn down the call of, a, of the president. Could it be that God's calling is not considered as important as the president's? The president, a frail man, another man just like us, calls us and we run. And Think about it. God, the creator, calls someone and the called person will consider the pros and cons to see if the call from the Lord will be accepted. We have that choice and we sure are going to think about it before we choose to answer God in the affirmative. On the other hand, the call from the president or even a lesser government official, uh, such as a governor perhaps, will carry enough influence and prestige so that the decision to accept is almost a foregone conclusion. There is nothing to think about. The answer is a resounding, of course, yes. I want to go, yeah, governor, I'll be, you know, whatever. Land commissioner, I'll be a railroad commissioner, I'll be whatever you tell Absolutely. The prestige of the earth is more important to most than the call from the Lord. Can you imagine then? The call from the creator of everything is lessened. But the call from another man is elevated. Let me say something about the prestige, if we can call it that, which is the result of answering God's call, okay? The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 6 through 7 tells us this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. Now Paul had answered God's call, didn't he? On the way to Damascus, he was blinded, thrown to the earth, and the Lord talked to him, and he recognized that it was Christ, that it was a superior force to him. And he answered, who are you, Lord? And he heard, I am Jesus, whom you are, why are you chasing me? Why are you chastening my people? Why are you doing this? Guess what you're going to be doing? And he did it. He says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've done what you told me to do, Lord. I've told what God told me to do. Everything he gave me to do, I've done it. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Finally, that's the reward I'm working for. There's nothing down here that I'm looking for. Paul had not been a, a poor man. He was an educated person. He was a Roman citizen. 
He was a Roman citizen, but he had prestige. He had position. In fact, when he was going to Damascus, he was carrying the letters of authorization from the temple officials, from the rabbis, from whoever was in authority. He was carrying all of those with him as the executor of those laws to bring back the Jews that had converted to the way, as Christianity was being called at that time, the way. That's who he was. He was not a cheap little guy. He was an important person. But on the road to Damascus, he dropped it all to answer the call. Dropped it all to answer the call of God. And he says, the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's the promise to us now. He says, those that choose the Lord too, he's going to have a crown for each one of you. This is significant on many levels, but let's look at just one of them. Any honor we receive from man will end when we die. Statues will crumble, plaques will tarnish, monuments will become irrelevant, and diplomas will fade. However, the crown of glory the apostle was talking about will live for all eternity. For all eternity. Nothing is going to tarnish that crown. Nothing is going to destroy that crown. Nothing is going to nullify that promise because it comes from God to us. And in him, there is no lie whatsoever. That's a very big, long time eternity. And that crown is good for that. God gives good gifts. Amen? Are we able to really see the power of God or does the fact that we can't physically see him diminish his worth in our eyes? God is not on our level. God's promises are kept, period. If he made a promise, he's going to keep it. How about us? Do we keep all of our promises? Can we really count on man to keep all his promises? But God's promises will be kept. He promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And he kept that promise. God, through Jesus Christ, promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. And he continues to keep that promise today. Amen? Amen? He's keeping that promise every day, folks. The Israelites who were disobeying the, law, the, the Lord were warned for a long time that their iniquity would take them into captivity. The prophets were coming and telling him, you've got to get squared away with the Lord. You've got to stop your sinning, your iniquity, 
or he's going to send someone to take you captive. If they continued in their sinful ways, they were warned even of the length of their captivity. God even told them, it's going to be for 70 years, guys. For 70 years, you're going to be captives if you continue on your way. Can you imagine? What do they do today? If we break the law out there, are they giving us how many chances? Just that one. You break your law, that's it. You broke the law. There's no other options. God was continually warning the Israelites and giving them chances to repent, to change. Did they listen? But God still promised them that even though they would be taken into servanthood, a remnant would be returned to Jerusalem at the end of their punishing period. Did God keep this promise? Ezra chapter 1 verse 11 tells the story. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled this was one of the warnings that the Israelites had received. It says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying. Now, what's the importance there? He, he not only said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. He put it in writing so that he couldn't back out. You see how the Lord prepared everything? He prepared everything. He says, I'm going to send you guys back to your land, but not until after your punishment. But he even prepared now the new king that was there, which was Cyrus, a new conqueror. And he says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Here, oh well, who is among you of all his people? Who is among you out there that's a Jew? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel, his God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the man of his the men, pardon, of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. What does this remind us of? Remember when they left Egypt? How did they leave Egypt? As poor paupers that they had been, as slaves that they had been to Egypt? Didn't the Lord stir the hearts of the people of the land so that they gave 
this new nation that was going to be set free. They gave them gold, they gave them silver, they gave them valuable things so that they left Egypt with the wealth of, of the country. God provided it for them so they wouldn't leave in a destitute manner. They wouldn't leave paupers. They wouldn't leave servants. They were free and rich. Now, here he's saying, hey, anybody next to these people, if they know that they're leaving and going to Jerusalem, help them out with gold and silver and precious things. Is that a good God or what? These are people that were being punished for their disobedience, but they are God's people, nevertheless. They're God's people, and God is going to take care of his children. Can I hear an amen on that? Because we are his children, and he's going to take care of his children. That's us also. Then the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Midridoth, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshub, what is it? Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shesh Bazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Don't you know that this was a treasure that the kings of Babylon were holding in their care? This is mine because we took it as part of the conquest. Here he is taking all of this out because God talked to him and said, Hey, send this back for it to adorn my temple the temple that is going to be built to my name, and you're going to help. You're going to help, Cyrus. Can you imagine? I'm going to come to that. A pagan king is giving God the glory, and we won't or don't. A pagan king was giving God the glory. He's saying he's the God of heaven. He's the God of the Israelites, of the, Israel, uh, of the Israelite nation. He's the God of heaven and earth. Go build a temple for him. A pagan king. And we have a hard time even coming to church. 
to glorify God, to honor God, our God, who has called us, as the Bible says, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Throughout history, God has always protected a remnant of his people so that when he is ready, he will restore them. When Rome caused the diaspora or dispersion of the Jews, it was just a continuation of what had started by other conquerors, such as the Assyrians. Actually, these dispersions probably saved many Jews who settled in other lands but kept their Jewish faith and cultures and grew, much as they did in Egypt. But think about this, during the reign of many despots, dictators, and plain old wicked kings, God has protected a remnant of his people. These are some of the oppressors that the Jews have been under. Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Greece, Spain in later years, Hitler, Stalin in Russia, and others throughout the ages who persecuted God's people. Through it all, the Jews have survived as a people, as a nation, a nation in transition, a nation in another country, but nevertheless, as Jewish people without changing very much from the original. As a race, they have survived through all of these things. Through it all, the Jews have survived because God said there will always be a remnant to continue the people of the Lord, his people. I don't want to go long, so I'm for your benefit, okay? Because, not for mine. I, I'm up here because God told me to give this, so. <clears throat> Amen. Our God is not someone we can demean or put down. He is not our toy. He is not a human being with the accompanying weaknesses and frailties of men. He is not someone we can manipulate. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, it says. There's a saying that says that. Good intentions, how oh, I meant to go. I meant to go, you know, I always wanted to do this. I had thought about, those are good intentions, but if we don't take them to fruition, they're worthless. They're worthless. And God never, never gets the glory from those things. The Apostle Paul, I believe, had truly captured the vision regarding who we are to God. He is the ruler over us. We are bond servants to him. Does the bond servant tell the master what to do? Does the bond servant control the master? Then why does mankind 
continuously try to do so. Do you recall the story of Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts 8, chapter 8, 14 through 23? Let's read it. And it says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. These are of the disciples. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now this is after they had received the power of the Holy Spirit. They were able to pray to God and miracles happened. They were able to heal people. They went and taught the word, and the word changed hearts, changed lives, affected entire cities. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Now they couldn't have done, they couldn't do that before. They couldn't do that when they were fishermen, when Matthew was collecting taxes, when Luke was trying to be a doctor. Maybe he was a chiropractor, I don't know. But they couldn't do these miracles here. It wasn't until God's power came upon them that they were changed and able to do this. And there was great joy in that city. Why? These are rebels. You know, in Jerusalem, they were looking down on them. These are the guys that they wanted to put in prison. These were the disciples that they wanted to kill and eventually did. That's who was going around spreading joy, spreading healing, spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Today, I believe they would call him a flim-flam man because that's all it was, smoke and mirrors and you know, tricks. Nobody ever called David Copperfield, uh, the magician, uh, that he's the power of God or Houdini. They all know that they were all tricks, illusions. But Philip was really performing healings. Well, Philip, God was through Philip, through his faithfulness in going out there in faith that God was speaking the truth. He was seeing healings going on. People were getting healed because God wanted it so. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So here's this guy performing all of these paganistic things 
and they were, partly they were afraid of him. That's what it is. You know, in, in, in Latin America, the, the curanderos and the, out in Haiti, the voodoo people, they're, people are afraid of them because if they put a curse on you, they think it's going to come true. It's up here. But what God brings us is down here. Truth in our hearts. Truth and the power of his word. That's what he gives us. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Somehow he continued on with Philip, and Philip continued doing all of these wonderful, wonderful things that God, God's power allowed him to bring about. And here was Simon who previously had been looked upon as a great person by all that knew him, he's the one now amazed. Now when the apostles who were in, at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. What empowered Philip? The Holy Spirit. So Peter and John went over there and said, if they're going to be believers, we're going to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit also. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The whole circle came, you know, the whole thing came around. And it happened all over again. When the disciples were in the upper room, they were still a bunch of a fearful, fear-filled people. Because they didn't know what was going to happen. Their leader, Jesus Christ, had gone to the cross. They're waiting there. They, he had risen, but the Holy Spirit had not come upon them yet. But he said, you go up there and you wait and stay there. Don't move from there. Wait because the Holy Spirit is going to come down upon you. So they had to be obedience in them, even though they were afraid, even though they stayed there, huddled together, that little group, waiting, praying, it says, that they were praying. And then that Holy Spirit came down upon them. And they were changed from disciples to apostles. Just like that. Because, as you recall, when they were speaking in tongues, the people that were walking around outside from all the nations heard them, and they each were hearing their own, their own language. And they were saying, these guys, what's going on with them? Aren't these guys from Galilee? What do they know? They don't know anything, much less the languages of all the peoples. How did that happen? And somebody says, they must be drunk. 
They must be drunk. And that's when they heard the words, hey, wait a minute, we're not drunk. That's the Holy Spirit that came upon us and it's here to tell you the truth, pal. You sent Jesus Christ to the cross. He was here to save you. He was here to save your worthless carcass. Well, they didn't speak that way, but that's what they meant. You're not worthy of it, but he came for you anyway to save you. And now this spirit, it's changed us and it can change you too. And the love of God can be poured out. What must we do? What do we have to do now, brothers? Just repent. Just repent and come to the Lord. Oh, and be baptized. And be baptized. That's it. You don't have to bring your money. You don't have to give your home. You don't have to bring your cars. You don't have to bring your job here. You don't have to bring all of the wonderful suits and clothing and everything, all the toys that we have at home. You don't have to bring any of that. You bring your heart, repent, and be baptized. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, what did he do, wonderful new Christian? He offered them money. He said, yeah, hey, give me some of that. Saying, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What were his plans, you, you might think? Was he now a new, what, prophet or a new disciple? What was he planning, having been a man of wealth because everybody considered him an important guy? What did he want with the Holy Spirit? He wanted to be able to heal or to give that to others because that would have been a lucrative thing for him. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. That's what you were thinking. I can buy that and guess what? I'll be somebody. If I was important before, wait till this takes hold. Wait till they see what I can do now. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness. And pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Ask him to forgive you because, let me tell you, you're in a precarious position right now, Simon. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. The Lord would have us see this story as an example of how we sometimes see him. Some believe that all we have to do is invoke the name of Jesus and God must act. It doesn't matter who. I mean, just, oh, I'm a Christian. Yes, in the name of Jesus, be healed. 
What happened to those guys that tried to go and, and heal people as he saw the disciples and they said, hey, well, we can do this too. We'll join this group. We're part of that group too. Let's go do that. And the spirit that they were trying to kick out says, hey, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? And then he proceeded to beat them up and cast them out naked into the street. Why? Because they were usurpers. Because they were fakes. Because they were not true believers or followers or lovers of God. They were faking it. They were only trying to gain the benefits of loving God. The blessings that God wants to shower upon each person that has loved him. James 5, 16 tells us, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Are you righteous in the eyes of God? Are we truly in a mode of servanthood to God? This whole message is about reflecting on our submission to or lack of submission to God. The times are such that we need to be plugged into God's will more than ever before. The Bible prophecies are coming true more and more in the days of Jeremiah, the people of Judah were warned repeatedly about the punishment that would befall them if their evil ways were continued, if they did not heed God's admonition. Did they listen? Are we listening today? There was an article in the Times a couple of days ago by David Marcus that was giving thanks to those who are backing and funding the organization that says we want freedom from religion. Hey, it's always been there. The Constitution guarantees it. You don't have to follow God. You don't have to believe in God. But you see, it's our responsibility to tell that person what the options are, what the consequences are of not believing in God. It's your, it's your choice. It's your choice if you don't want to believe in God. But don't try to take mine away. I have a choice too that I can make, and that's that I choose to believe in God. Because I've seen His power act on my behalf. And I'm sure you all have too. He doesn't just choose one or two people to bless. Every one of us has the option of being blessed. Every one. But you see, John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him. And we will come and dwell in you. 
In other words, you love Jesus Christ, you keep his commandments, God is watching us. The God that created the universe is looking at us. And when he sees us love his son, he can't help it. His love is going to come and embrace us and just knock our socks off with love that is incomprehensible to most of us. Did punishment come to those Israelites that didn't pay attention to God's warnings? You bet. The Lord would much rather bless his people than allow them to be punished for disobedience. But the choice is ours, folks. It is by our choices that God will bless us or allow us to be disciplined. As any loving earthly father would do, God disciplines those whom he loves. So if you're going under discipline right now, hey, don't turn your back on it. It's God calling you and telling you, that's not right. And I want you to understand it so that you can get back on that path that I've set for your life that will bring you ultimately to me. This is a call to arms, not to fight against God, but against the enemy who would like to see us cast into the lake of fire where he will eventually be cast also. Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented, what, a couple of days, a couple of years, a couple of decades, a couple of centuries, millennia, day and night forever and ever. The lake of fire is an option, not a preordained destination. But the option carries a responsibility with it. As we said before, we must be in God's will at all times, as Paul admonished the people when he wrote to Timothy. And it says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I'm about to check out, folks, because they don't want me around here and my life will be cut short, but I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the creator, the originator of all good things, the father, the heavenly father, the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. How many, don't raise your hands, but how many here today have loved his appearing? Amen. <laughs> Couldn't help it how huh? the spirit just moved you to <laughs> Praise God. Amen. Who has loved his appearing? 
who is waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. That means that you believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and now continues to carry out his promises, to carry out his word until that final day when we go up there to receive a crown similar to Paul's. Amen? Will we be able to make that declaration as well? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Will we be able to say that in the end? I pray that we will. Because it's the only way that we're going to meet again up there. If you want to meet up there, Paul is giving us a formula there. But so is this book, folks. It's all in here. The formula is complete in here. This is just capsulized. He's just saying what he had to do. There are many little parts to, to what he did, to those three things that he states that he did. There are many little parts to, to that, to fulfill that, his agreement with God. But the promise itself is written throughout the Bible for us. It's the truth, it's the light, and it's for us. Will we receive it? Will we pay attention to it? Will we obey God, our Creator, and our Heavenly Father? Let's all stand in for prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, how wonderful it is to know who you are, Lord. To know that your promises do not return void. That your word, Lord, is truth and light. To know, Father, that your intention is love for every one of us. Lord, that you've given us the option to believe. But you've also given us the key through Jesus Christ through the cross. What a wonderful gift, Lord. We couldn't even have imagined that that was possible. But it's not, it's not about what we can imagine. It's not about what we have thought, Lord. It's what you already had planned for each one of us. Because it's the same promise that has been active throughout the ages, Lord. And it's for every one of us. What a great love that is. We want to thank you today, Lord, because of it. Thank you for opening our hearts to your word. Thank you for clearing from in front of us, Lord, all the brush and all of the garbage that the world has thrown out as a barrier, Lord, trying to build a barrier between you and each one of us that we may see clearly the path you've set before us and that we may see clearly the goal as Paul saw it, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you for guiding us this week that if any word here heard today, Lord, changes our hearts, we may not ignore it, Lord. 
we may come and give you all the honor and the glory that you deserve. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.